Previously on the storyteller Violent Delights, Sheila Garvey took her seat for what she described was a one-woman audience to a macabre pantomime. I had been catapulted into the jaws of justice to be swallowed up remorselessly by the tide of public opinion. But the character assassination was directed at the victim, 35-year-old Maxwell Garvey. He's fond of female company, but has strong homosexual tendencies, has threatened suicide on at least one occasion, deals in pornographic material, is an active member of nudist camps. I'm Isla Traquair, and this is the storyteller Violent Delights, a true story of love which began as a fairy tale, but ended in a nightmare. From castles to a courtroom, this story rocked Scotland like no other. It's a crime so historic only a few characters are alive to tell the tale. And I'm tracking them down for what might be the last chance to discover the truth behind the headlines and who killed Maxwell Garvey and why. November 20th, 1968. Hundreds of people queued for hours in the darkness of winter for the start of the second day of the trial of Sheila Garvey, Brian Tevendale and Alan Peters. All three were accused of murdering the prominent flying farmer Maxwell Garvey. Edith Watson returned to the witness box after collapsing the previous afternoon. She was about to endure hours of giving evidence and cross-examination. The reserved and religious grandmother explained to the court what Sheila had told her the morning after Max allegedly disappeared. Here's what she said. She told me she had wakened in the early hours of the morning and her husband was not in bed beside her. She had gone to the garage and his car was gone. However, a day later, Sheila began to confide in her mother. Solicitor General Yoon Stewart QC questioned her about this. Did she say something to you which rather surprised you? Well... She told me all my worries were over. I would have no more worries. Did you ask her what she meant by that? I just looked at her and she said, you will have no more worries, Mum, and that he would not be back. Mrs Watson said she asked her daughter about this because she had understood that Max had just gone away to think about things following an argument. She said she can't remember Sheila's exact words, but it prompted her to ask a very direct question. You don't mean he is dead, do you? By nodding her head, I presumed she was agreeing he was dead. Did she say anything about other people? She said something about a strong man, but I can't remember exactly. She said something about a strong man at her back. I I think that was it, but I'm not sure. Mrs Watson said she asked her daughter if she was referring to Tevendale and whether he'd been involved. She nodded yes. What did you understand from this? I presumed Maxwell was dead. She did not say anything about what happened, but I presumed he was dead. I think it's important to point out that Mrs Watson told the court that Sheila didn't know where the body was, only that it was far away and that Max hadn't suffered. She did, however, ask her mother about the tides. 
Now here on the Castle Estate where the tunnel is, we're about a mile from the North Sea coast and this was just a drainage culvert so it would have been impossible for Max's body to have ended up in the sea, suggesting that Sheila was telling the truth. Now from here on in I'm going to have to mix up the order of the evidence and the witnesses so I can tell the story in the best way. Next you'll hear Lionel Dykey's very colourful line of questioning to Edith Watson about the love match that went horribly wrong. They were married in June 1955. Yes. Were you present that day? Yes. She was a beautiful bride. Yes. And he was a handsome husband. Yes. And they made an admirable couple. Yes. And for a number of years after the marriage, they lived together as husband and wife in great happiness. Yes. They had a start with two lovely daughters and later a little boy. Yes. And for the first ten years, it appeared to be an ideally happy marriage. Yes. Then came a change. Maxwell was drinking more and started taking Pro Plus pills. And he was up one minute and down the next. Yes. Did you notice any change in his attitude towards his wife? Yes. I don't know how to express it. He was a bit scornful at times. By 1967, did you think there were two personalities in Maxwell Garvey? A sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Yes. There was a decent side, a handsome husband, and another personality emerged. Yes. A sort of evil personality. It was most unlike him. There's more to this line of questioning and what led to Mrs Watson going to the police with her secret. But I think it's important to hear some of Sheila's evidence to get the full background and finally understand her connection with co-accused Brian Tevendale. She didn't take to the witness stand until towards the end of the trial and retired journalist Stuart McCartney remembers the moment clearly. Lionel Dykey's QC's dramatic opening gave him the front page hook he'd been looking for. What happened was, it was quite interesting, and, and all the reporters uh, had pissed off about 25 past four from the High Court in Aberdeen when Lionel got up and, and he said, my lord, uh, in view of the last uh, of the evidence from the last uh, witness, I feel it would be un, unreal to let the jury retire for the night without hearing at least something uh, from my accused. So the judge agreed, and this is the interesting point, he got Sheila Garvey into the witness box. Uh, there was only two or three reporters there, and uh, this was in the High Court in Aberdeen, and uh, he, he said that she took the oath, and he said, a moment ago, uh, Mrs. Garvey, you raised your right hand and uh, spoke the truth to our Lord, that you would tell the truth. Yes, he said, now I want you to raise your left hand to the jury. And then, this is quite emotional, he said, I see it blinking on your wedding finger, a gold a gold wedding ring. Why is that there? I got it from Marshall Garvey the day I loved him, and I loved him till the day I died, and I still love him. 
could you imagine me sitting there with a front page pattern into that? Her evidence began with her children. Wendy, aged 12, Angela, aged 11, and her four-year-old son, Lloyd, who were all being looked after by her mother. Then she was asked about how her marriage had progressed. Very well, until 1962, when there was a, a development, a, a crisis, which arose in my marriage, which I could not cope with. Up until 1962, everything went reasonably normally. Yes. In 1962, something happened. Yes. The court heard Sheila had become depressed and ended up going to the doctor for sleeping tablets. The catalyst had been her husband's newfound interest in nudist clubs. What precipitated the crisis? What was causing the difficulties for which you had to get treatment? My husband started to take an interest in becoming a member of a nudist colony. He sent away for particulars and in the form that came back it said that it would be easier for a man to join if his wife accompanied him. I didn't want this to happen. I didn't want to become a member of such a club. We had a, a great argument about it. Eventually I agreed to go with him. He took me to this club in Edinburgh. You're shown this wooden shed outside this cottage and men and women went in. One man in particular insisted that this young girl, about 11 or 12, sit on his knee, which, which I thought was disgusting. After that, I told my husband I could not go back again. About the same time, my husband asked me to, to take part in unnatural sex with him, and this upset me. How did the situation develop? Did it improve, get worse, or stay the same? It stayed the same. He seemed to get sex out of all proportion, any connection with it. He sent away to addresses in London and literature and all sorts of books came back, pornographic pictures and books. She explained that Max had persuaded her to pose nude for him and discovered he'd shown the photos to a fellow flying enthusiast when she met him months later. He said to me, I have seen more of you than what you think. I asked my husband about this and he said that he'd shown the man the photograph. In her memoir, Sheila reflected upon her first exposure to nudism. Later in bed beside him, I lay awake in a turmoil of emotion. I was beginning to realise that I was married to a man who, despite his wealth, status, mastery of farming and intelligence, was rich only in material things. To Max, I was just another one of his possessions. He was becoming gradually perverted. Not only was he developing an unhealthy interest in nudism, but he was starting to make abnormal sexual demands of me. They were demands with which I simply could not cope. It was the first real crisis in my life. The court heard Max took his family on holiday to a nudist club in Corsica while Sheila was pregnant with her youngest child. 
Not satisfied with her unwillingness to attend the club in Edinburgh, he decided to buy a cottage in Afford, west of Aberdeen, which he turned into his own nudist club. Sheila claimed she was forced to perform the opening ceremony, but refused to remove her clothes. This secluded property became known locally as Kinky Cottage. There were rumours of it being a safe place for naturist-loving families, and in direct opposition, a secret hideaway for orgies. I remember it was just more like a shack than anything else, and it was like a little cottage place. Um, it wasn't too elaborate, and uh, it had the name locally known as Kinky Cottage, um, because by this time things were unfolding, and uh, there were believed to be quite a lot of uh, activities took place there um, of uh, sort of sexual nature. Retired officer Ian Gordon was sent to the cottage to gather evidence. We did go and uh, we, we photographed that um, as well because it was part of the picture that had to be built up. And having had dealings with them before, how shocked were you to learn of this? I was very surprised, yes. Yes, I had, I had uh, no knowledge of that, certainly. In my days at uh, stationed at Lawrence Kirk, I had uh, no knowledge of this going on at all. I, I knew nothing about it and, and didn't suspect anything either. Despite the shock of people learning that a secret nudist camp was nestled in rural Aberdeenshire, retired journalist Gordon Hay believes many were in awe of Max's less than conventional lifestyle. Max's appetites were well beyond agriculture and, the, uh, and his day job. People were, I've got to say, maybe in awe uh, whether they approved or disapproved of the lifestyle, but were in awe of uh, of what went on. Um, I mean, the uh, it's well known. Uh, it was well it was well known in the story that uh, he rented a a cottage up near Afford on Donside, which is a the kind of sort of parallel glen to Royal Deeside where Bomorl is, and they had uh, they had sex parties and uh, in the summertime, although I'm not sure it had been that long, but they were prancing about and, the, and they'd turn it in a sort of nudist camp and had barbecues and did drugs and all sorts of things there. And um, it was it was nicknamed Kinky Cottage and it did play a, a sort of central part of the, uh, of the evidence in the 10-day trial. So everybody knew the story. But uh, it, it, it appeared that Max's... Uh, it had an ever-increasing sort of diet of, of drugs and drink and everything. There was a neighbour, and I can't remember his name now, he had been one of the uh, uh, visitors to this, uh, the Kinky Cottage. That's the voice of retired police officer Sandy Reid, whose neighbour, a lawyer, was a regular at Kinky Cottage. He and other attendees were worried the register for the cottage might get leaked to the public. He was quite worried and uh, uh, the fact that everybody would find out he'd been sort of visiting the Kinky Cottage, which was a very good idea. Uh, but, but anyway, he had nothing to do with, uh, directly with, as far as we knew, he had nothing really to do with the murder or anything like that. There, there would be a lot of meeting of uh, various uh, couples and things like that. Some of the couples probably weren't, uh, uh, weren't married and, uh, well, they probably married, but good their wives were there with them or whatever. There'd been a mixed lot, but they were, they were mainly 
uh, young people, well, young and up-and-coming people uh, who were just having a good time, basically. But uh, they didn't want probably this, uh, the various, uh, either, either of the two sexes to find out that the opposite number was uh, doing this. There was a register kept there, but I think they had this sort of signed uh, they were all terrified that uh, that it would disappear and uh, go the rounds and other people would find out about it. So there was a bit of a, I believe there was a bit of a panic, but it was just all, this is all sort of scuttlebutt. As his appetite for sexual exploration increased, so did his need for alcohol and drugs. Max's fast living had begun with cars and then his plane and even politics. He joined the Scottish National Party, and this is how he'd met Brian Tevendale. The 22-year-old did not give evidence in court, but his statement to police was read out. In it, he explains his friendship with Max and the unusual circumstances of how he and Sheila had become lovers. I met Maxie Garvey in the SNP outing to Bannockburn. I had a few drinks with him and his wife, and I was invited flying the next day. On the following weekend, I went down to the Marine Hotel in Stonehaven with him and his wife. And when we left the Marine, I sat in the back of his car with his wife at his request. When we arrived at the chip shop, he and the front passenger, George Haddon, went into the chip shop. I started to follow, and I was promptly told to get back into the car and keep his wife happy. The following weekend, I was invited back to the farm. We went out on the Saturday night drinking. We had a few drinks, and when we returned home to the farm, I went to bed. A short time later, Sheila was pushed into the room and the door was shut. She said she had been told to spend the night in there or else. Later on that week, Sheila came down to the garage and picked me up from my work. She said Max wanted us to go out for a drink that night. When I arrived there, he handed me the keys of one of his cars and he told me to take Sheila out as he was going out with someone himself. That someone else, the woman in Maxwell's life, was a tall, blonde, attractive woman named Trudy Burse, Brian Tevendale's sister, who was married to police constable Fred Burse. During a pre-trial interview, Sheila solicitor Lawrence Dowdle said Trudy told him in astonishingly frank detail the remarkable sexual behaviour between husband and wife and their lovers, a brother and sister. During cross-examination, Lionel Dykey's QC asked Trudy about the first time she met Max when her brother and Sheila were present. Indeed, you fell for him. I was immediately attracted to him. On that very first evening, Max suggested you're meeting together again. And did you meet again the following day? Yes, the following day, Max and Brian went out for a walk. Sheila and I stayed together. Did that suggest to you the commencement of an affair. I thought it would be pleasant to be in his company. He was a man of very magnetic personality. He was. And you almost felt the electricity in his company. Yes. You felt the electricity that night. You can put it that way. Sheila claimed she did not have sex with Brian until after Trudy and Max had got together. She told the court Max kept setting up situations for her and Brian to be alone. On two different occasions, he said he was tired and went off. 
leaving Brian and I in the candlelit room playing records. The third time this happened, he brought a bottle of vodka in and we all had a drink. Then he went upstairs to bed. I remember at that time Brian asking what my husband was up to. And later when I went to bed, my husband asked me questions about Brian, which I thought were absolutely revolting. Did it occur to you as a result of the questions you were asked that your husband took the view that you and Brian had been intimate while you were downstairs? Yes. What were the circumstances in which you came to be unfaithful to your husband? I fell in love with Brian. We have heard evidence from your mother that your husband had thrown you into Brian's arms. My husband seemed to encourage this to happen. Did he ever arrange any situation in which Brian and you could be together? On the nights he was taking Mrs Burst out, he arranged for Brian to take me out. In her memoir, Sheila went into more detail about the unusual circumstances in which she finally had sex with Brian. On my way back from the bathroom, I found Max standing in the corridor, obviously very excited. He more or less pushed me into Brian's room, told me to stay there and closed the door behind me. Brian Tevendale too reflected on that moment and how his older male friend almost groomed him to become his wife's lover. We used to go flying and drinking together. He was a very charismatic guy. And then he started drinking and popping pills and he went all to hell. He had it all and started to look for more excitement. One night, I was staying at their farm and he pushed Sheila into my room and he locked the door. We had to sleep together. She was Starker's and it was freezing cold. But she was an amazing looking woman and I was probably quite chuffed about it all. Who wouldn't be? Sheila not only had to sleep with Brian, but Max would insist on having sex with her when she returned to the marital bed. On some occasions, a coin was used to decide her bed partner for the night. When Trudy was not there, my husband suggested to Brian that he toss a coin. Whoever won would sleep with me. Trudy was also ordered which bedroom to be in and when. He set the alarm clock, sometimes 5, sometimes 5.30am. Trudy came and knocked on the bedroom door. This was to let me know it was time to get through to my husband. She would go into another bedroom. And the whole of the situation was, by this time, affecting you? Relations between my husband and I were very bad because of what he expected. How did you feel in your eyes as a result of what was happening? I was ashamed of myself. Sheila's shame was compounded by the fact that her mother knew what was going on. Max told her himself about the coin tossing. He said he tossed a coin with Brian Tevendale to see who would sleep with my daughter first. It was horrible. Did you understand that Maxwell had been making certain sexual demands on his wife, which his wife felt were unnatural and should not be exceeded to? Yes. Did you understand that Trudy, on the other hand, was prepared to do these things Max wanted and Sheila did not want to do? Yes. Did that indicate to you that there had indeed been a change in the man your daughter married? Yes. 
in the early days of their marriage and up to the time the children were born, your son-in-law had always been gentlemanly towards his wife. Indeed, he was the sort of husband many women would envy. Yes. Behind the facade of that perfect marriage, Max not only orchestrated his wife's affair, but he wanted to know every graphic detail about it. Did he ever ask you to tell him about your relationship with Brian? Yes, he did. What kind of information was he seeking from you? Information of a very intimate nature and detail. Trudy told the court that he would grill her too for information about Sheila and her brother's physical relationship, which she believed had commenced before she and Max became lovers. One night, Trudy's husband, Police Constable Fred Burse, unwittingly got set up with a young woman at West Cairnbeg, while she and Max and Brian and Sheila went off to their respective bedrooms. It must have been perfectly apparent that Sheila and Brian had not gone upstairs to discuss philosophy and you and Max had gone upstairs to bed. Yes. He suddenly found he was left with romantic music, candles flickering softly, left alone with a blind date. Yes. Is this not the case that this kind of activity was organised and controlled by Max? It was, but it was not without Sheila's approval. Do you know what Max's object was in indulging in a course of action which, to put it mildly, might have destroyed two marriages? It could have done. Not everybody might have been as understanding as your husband. That is very true. Is it not the case that in the course of the foursome relationship, a situation was arrived at in which Max was anxious that his wife should be in the arms of Brian? Indeed. He encouraged it. Did he get some kick or thrill knowing his wife was having an affair with Brian? Yes. Did he tell you that? Yes. He got some satisfaction out of it. Did he ever make any complaints about Sheila's position as he wife to him? Yes. What were they? He said Sheila was very frigid and didn't respond to his lovemaking and that he was encouraging the friendship between Brian and Sheila so as to make Sheila become a better lover for himself. In fact, he told me at the start of the relationship between Brian and Sheila, he had lit candles in the room, got soft music on again, gave them quite a lot to drink, and that he encouraged them and told them to enjoy each other's company. He then went upstairs to bed. He liked to ask Sheila questions about what had happened downstairs between Brian and her in their sexual relationship. Did he ask you to ascertain the most intimate details of the relationship between the two of them? Yes. Did he seem to get some kind of a thrill by receiving information of this kind? Yes. So, if it were to be said that in fact Mr Garvey threw his wife into the arms of Brian right from the very beginning, that would be consistent with what you saw of the general setup? Yes, it would. Did Max ever make any comparison between the pleasure he got in your company compared with the pleasure he got from his wife. He did. What was that? He told me that he had told his wife that he had more pleasure from myself in two evenings than he had had from her in all their life together. At this period, did he ever speak to you not only about his relationship with his wife, also about his interest in the photographs in relation to his wife? Yes. What did he tell you about that? He showed me some photographs of Sheila, taken with no clothes on in the living room at Cairn Beg, 
on beaches and lots of other books he had in the house of nudes and books of nudist camps and pornographic photographs. At this time, what were his drinking habits like? Bax drank very heavily. Did he take anything else outside alcohol? Yes, tablets. What kind of tablets? In particular, Pro Plus, which he consumed in great quantities. Do you know what the object was in taking these? He told me it gave him a boost in life and made him feel good. The court heard the foursome existed somewhat happily for a time, and they even went away for weekends to stay in hotels in Glasgow and Edinburgh. But something ruined Max's plan and sent him into a deeper spiral of extreme behaviour. He realised Sheila and Brian were deeply in love. A love that would lead to violence. In the next episode of the storyteller Violent Delights, claims that Max both loved and hated Brian Tevendale. He told me that he actually loved Brian more than he loved his wife Sheila. And Sheila's failed attempts to leave her husband, which pushed him over the edge. He smashed the glass and took up a bit of it and held it to my face. This is the storyteller Violent Delights, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. The title music is Searchlight by Cathedral and all the other music is written and performed by Nick J. Tyler. There's more information on social media and please subscribe to be the first to hear the next episode. And if you've enjoyed this, please rate and review on iTunes. It really makes a difference and helps others hear this incredible story.